0: Y'all, y'all didn't know I was going to go. Some of y'all in here, y'all like, I'm in high school right now. Um, that's great. That's good. That makes my job easy. Any of y'all like physics? Yes, I see hands. I hated it. Um, uh, I, I hated physics because I liked chemistry because in physics, things fall. In chemistry, things go boom. Uh, but, yes, I was I was the guy who liked to take the potassium and throw it in the puddle so that it goes... Poof, you know, that was, chemistry was fun. Physics was like, build this tower and don't make it fall. Okay. Uh, but in physics, there are, there are laws. There, there are rules, not that you're supposed to follow, but that, I mean, you're going to follow. It's, it's not like you choose to obey gravity, right? You're going to obey gravity, Wiley Coyote figures this out every time he tries to catch the roadrunner that he falls every time he goes off the edge of that cliff. There's nothing you can, you can do about that. You don't break the law of gravity, the law of gravity breaks you. Um, so the laws of physics are kind of concrete. Well, one of the things that you learn in physics that I believe it's one of our classic Sir Isaac Newton uh, laws is that an object in motion tends to remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. Okay? So you experience that. You're like, I did not want to go to physics today. I hate physics. But you experience this every day when you get in your car. Because have you ever come up on a red light that you could swear was not a red light two seconds ago? (laughs) Have you ever come up on one? And when you see it, you're like, well... I need to stop, so what do you do? You take your foot and you gently put it down on the brake pedal. No. What do you do? You slam it down. And when you slam your foot down on the brake pedal, what do you do? (laughs) Because you told your car to stop, but the laws of physics tell your car, "Uh uh-uh. And they tell your body, "Uh uh-uh. Which is why that seatbelt is your best friend in that moment. Because if you didn't have that seatbelt, you would either be through the windshield or laying on your horn making the people around you angry. Right? You're going to continue to move because the momentum of your car, even though you don't feel it, is so great that when you slam the brakes on, you continue to move in that direction. And you're not thinking well, my car's about to stop, but I would really like to keep going forward. So I think I will. You don't ever think that, do you? You just involuntarily do it. So if you looked at the the, the sermon title today and you're like, what in the world is sinertia? No, not sinertia, sinertia, like inertia. I made that word up this week. So if you're like, I've never seen this word before. Did he learn this? No, this is the word that gets you kicked out of seminary for being a dum-dum. <laughs> I made this word up because I think it makes sense. Because what we're going to see in this passage today is that the longer you keep going, the more you keep pushing back against God. The more you keep saying, I don't want anything to do with you, I don't want to listen to you, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to deal with you, I don't want to pay attention to you, I don't want to submit to you, I don't want to serve you, I don't want to be part of this, I don't want to hear you, I don't want to see you, I don't want to, the longer you do that, the harder you get toward him speaking to you until scarily you can't hear him at all. Say, well, would God let that happen only on every page of Scripture? It happens over and over and over and over and over. That God does not ever cast anyone out of his presence so that they can't come to him. But if you choose to harden your heart, God will let you do that. God will let you walk away from being able to hear him. He will let you do it. Now, there is a remedy for that. I'm not going to be. I'm not up here screaming hellfire and brimstone today. I don't want to do that because Jesus gives us a caution in the middle of this that helps us to avoid that. This doesn't have to be. I'm not out here screaming at you. God's done this because if you, honestly, if you're here today, God's very clearly still trying to speak to you. Right? You're sitting here today. I've got my Bible open. I'm preaching His Word to you. God's very clearly still trying to communicate with you. And Jesus' caution to you is, listen. Listen while you have the chance. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 16. We're going to read verse 12, and we're going to go down through verse 16. Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, co- frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Father, I pray that you would uh, bless us in understanding your word today, as complex as it may be, and help us to understand that its truth is really very simple. Uh, we love you, and I pray you'd send your Holy Spirit to convict and save today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, after last week when we took a detour um, to discuss the sanctity of human life, today we're going to jump back into our study through the book of Revelation. Um, to just, there, there are lots of characters and events mentioned here uh, that I want to give a quick recap as to who they are and what's going on. Because if I don't do that, this is not going to make a lot of sense. So the book of Revelation as a whole is a vision given to the Apostle John while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. Uh, The book of Revelation is, even though it is a vision, it is in fact God warning the church ahead of time for the way this whole story ends. This is the way it all comes down to to its conclusion. And where we have arrived at this point is the majority of the population of planet earth by chapter 16 of the book of Revelation has made an indelible, unchangeable choice that they're going to put their faith in a global world leader known as the beast. Um, Now they don't know him as the beast. I don't know what they know him as, but scripture knows him as the beast. Um, This title is is symbolic of his brutality, his viciousness, his animal type nature um, that he denies and blasphemes God. In fact, he actually sets himself up as God and demands that everyone on earth worship him and trust him as though he is God. Well, due to the nature of this being the ending chapters of humanity, uh, the majority of humanity actually goes along with this. They trust Him and they follow along with Him because He is so convincing and He's got a partner that's so convincing. It's also known as a beast in Revelation, but He also gets called the false prophet. That He's kind of the beast's PR guy. He's kind of His spokesman. That He's the guy that you see on TV or on the internet or on your cell phone or whatever will be be going on at this time period. He's the one that convinces you, you need to follow the beast. And it appears that these two actually have divine power. Notice that I said appears. They don't actually have divine power. They are in fact powered by a spiritual being, but it ain't God. So you've got the beast that is kind of a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit savior of the world that everyone trusts in the middle of the turmoil that is the book of Revelation. You've got the false prophet that's a counterfeit Holy Spirit. That is the the one who communicates and persuades on behalf of the beast. So if you've got a counterfeit Jesus and a counterfeit Holy Spirit, you've got to have a false who to complete the Trinity. You've got to have a false father. You've got to have a false God. And that would be the one who has wanted to replace God for, I don't know, the entirety of the Bible. That would be Satan, known in the book of Revelation as the dragon. He is the one behind the beast and the false prophet, and they're kind of running the show on earth, it seems, except the fact that God is exercising his divine power with great visibility. No one is repenting from following the beast and following God, despite the fact that God keeps showing himself over and over and over and over and over again. There's a total lack of repentance on the part of humanity, and... In chapter 16, the finality of God's wrath is getting poured out on earth in the form of what's called the bowl judgments. Every time one of these angels pours out a bowl, that's getting closer and closer to the end of God's wrath. And we're looking at the sixth one today. So, first I want us to see that God does not tempt us to destroy ourselves, but he will let us. Look at verse 12 says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now this is interesting. Uh, You might say, well, yes, it's interesting. You've got an angel pouring out a bowl on a river that miraculously dries up. Yes, it is interesting for that factor. But it's also interesting that this has actually already happened one time in history. Now an angel didn't do it. King Cyrus of Persia did it. Because Babylon, which by the way in Revelation is the the, the capital of the beast's kind of kingdom, is Babylon, whether it's a symbolic Babylon, it's it's another city that the Bible just refers to as Babylon. Either way, it's kind of the seat of the beast's power. The ancient Babylon was captured by the Persian Empire under King Cyrus. And in order for that to happen... He had to actually get into the city. It's kind of hard to capture a city if you can't get into it, right? Well, Babylon was heavily fortified, and Cyrus couldn't find a way in. So Cyrus got sneaky. Cyrus had his engineers actually divert the Euphrates River and dry it up because it ran into the city of Babylon. So he dried up the Euphrates River by diverting it and then marched his army into Babylon in the dry riverbed. And Babylon didn't have any answer. They couldn't do anything about it. Because what do you do when the entire Persian army is standing in the middle of your city? You can't fight them there. So Babylon actually surrenders to Cyrus, and that marks the end of the Babylonian Empire, and it happens because the Euphrates River dried up to let these other kings in. So this is interesting in that it's actually happened in history. The folks reading this would have known that it happened in history because it's honestly not been that long ago. It's been a few it's been, you know, a few hundred years, but it has happened. The difference is then, when it happened, it let an army in. But this time, it says the angel drives up the Euphrates to let the army what? To let it out. It's to prepare the way for the kings of the east. So what's going on here? Some commentaries think that maybe the Antichrist has ticked off. Maybe the beast has ticked off some other kings from another part of the world, and they're like, your leadership's not cutting it. And he says, oh, yes, it is. Well, we're going to go to war. Well, we're going to go to war. Nothing in Scripture says that. Scripture says that the earth is basically united together as a human people in their hatred of the God of the Bible. That this is now a completely godless society centered around the, the cultic worship of the beast. So I don't see any reason to believe that these two armies are coming after each other. What I think is happening is that for some reason, the scripture does make this clear, they think that they're going to go to open war against God. And the Euphrates, for some reason, is in the way. So God, generously, you might say, says, oh, that river a problem? You want to fight that bad? I'll take the river out of the way for you. Does that help? Now, if these bowls are to be understood as absolute, the Euphrates River has been blood for at least three bowls now. But it's gone now. God dries it up. There's a stated purpose. The waters are dried up so that the kings of the east can proceed to a specific location. We're told later in this passage that it's Armageddon. It's a battlefield. So important to note, God does not decree that this army has to leave and get ready to fight, does he? As part of this bold judgment, does he look down and say, all right, bring them out, boys. Bring your tanks, bring your missiles, bring your planes, bring bring your guns, bring whatever you got. I'm out here, I'm ready. Does God tempt them to come fight him? You don't see that anywhere, do you? All he does is move a natural obstacle that is preventing them from bringing their military out. He just moves it out of the way. That's all God does. You might even look at this bowl and say, that's not really even a plague. Oh, yes, it is. So first, I want us to see the bowl itself. Now, once God has taken that restraining river out of the way, look at what happens. You see in verse 13 this grotesque picture of these three frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Now, whether or not these are literal frogs, I don't know. I, I tend to think no. Have y'all ever heard a frog? What's a frog sound like? Brr. <makes> that <noise> doesn't sound alluring at all, does it? It's kind of this low, nasty, guttural thing you hear it you immediately know it's a frog you don't ever think of you know wow that sounds beautiful that's just that's no that's that's old frog out there in the woods he thinks he's singing but it's it's nasty frogs were unclean to israel in the old testament frogs were actually one of the plagues that came upon egypt in exodus because of how disgusting they are. You can say what you want about frogs, but y'all, frogs stink. Except that you got to cook the legs, and I, you, can, you can have all that, brother. I promise you, if anybody ever gives me some frog legs, I'll give them to you. You can have them. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I am not a fan. They say it tastes like chicken. My response is, then eat chicken. <clears throat> But do you know what else they say? If you go back and you read Exodus, you know what one of the worst parts of the plagues of frogs was? The stench. When they died, they just had to pile them. Were, there were just piles of them everywhere. It made the entirety of Egypt stink. Because of this plague. Frogs are nasty. What typically, when a person opens their mouth, what typically comes out of a person's mouth? Words. What has Satan been doing since the beginning of creation? What comes out of his mouth? Lies. 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 Satan continually lies. Folks who work for Satan continually lie. The beast is the best employee of Satan there has ever been, which means he will be the best liar Satan has ever employed. Can you imagine the PR chief For Satan's chief liar. He's probably going to be pretty good at it too, isn't he? But Satan's getting involved himself. He's lying. And what are they all lying about? These frogs go out to convince the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather their armies in battle against God. That's the plan. How do they know where to go? I don't know. How did they decide... Armageddon we'll talk about where this place is later I don't know but that's where they decide they're going to line up their military against God and if you look at Revelation 19 19 they're openly telling people that we're going to go to war against God and you might say that's crazy that's ridiculous who in their right mind stop right there you're assuming these people are in their right minds they're not. They've been deceived. They've been lied to. They've been convinced by Satan himself that if you line up enough guns against God, you can win. Josh, that's crazy. That's silly. I'm wasting my time at church today. No one would ever believe that, except they do. They do. What brought them to this point? Why would God let this happen? Doesn't God bear any responsibility for this? Couldn't He have prevented the, couldn't He have said, nope, you're not going to convince them of this. You know they'll all die. Couldn't He have prevented these demons from convincing people? Couldn't He have stopped the propaganda? Couldn't He have done a work in people's heart to prevent them from believing it? Couldn't He expose the beast for who He is? Why doesn't He? He even moved the Euphrates River out of the way so that they can go do this. Why isn't this God's fault? it would be a convincing argument except for one thing. If you want to line up with Satan and board the fastest bus to hell in the Bible, literally lining up your guns to point at God, if you want to do that, you've already got to step over Jesus' dead body. Jesus died to prevent you being here. How was I supposed to know? Wasn't I warned? Didn't God warn me again about this? Yes. Over and over and over again. If you go back to Exodus chapter 14, this is on your handout. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots, the Egyptian spec ops, And all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Now, I don't know about y'all, but there's not many scarier verses in the Bible than that one. What does that verse tell me? That verse tells me that it is possible to resist God to the degree that He will say, fine, have it your way. If you want to run headlong at me and fight me, after everything i have done for you after every word i have spoken i gave you prophets i gave you apostles i gave you my son i gave you the church i gave you christian witnesses i gave you the i gave you christian radio i gave you the internet i gave you more ways to get in Get my word that at any time in human history, you can find it in just about any language that you could possibly speak. The Bible's in it and you can get it for free from that little thing that's in your pocket that we spend all our time on every day. Right. Well, well, what if I can't see? Well, guess what? The audio Bible's free, too. You ain't even got to touch your screen to do it. You can say, hey, I'm not going to say it because my phone will start talking to me. But, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, you can do that. If you've got a little echo, nobody's got one in here. If you've got an Amazon phone, you brought it in here, you ain't got no reception, no way, so I ain't worried about it. You can say, Alexa, read me the Gospel of John. And, I, and you know what? Your Amazon Echo will start doing it. Won't it? Yeah, you can do it. So maybe you have you know maybe you do better with film. The Jesus film has been translated into more languages than just about any other movie. If you want the gospel, you can get it in just about any medium of choice at low or no cost. There is no excuse for having not heard God. Guys, do you realize, can you think of how many more people would have heard the gospel from Billy Graham's ministry had he had the technological resources that we have today when he was at the height of his evangelistic career? And that man preached to more people alive than anybody else who's ever walked the face of the earth. Billy Graham shared the gospel with more people than the Apostle Paul, which I know sounds crazy, but it is objectively true. That the gospel is more readily accessible now than at any time of history. So it is absolutely senseless to say this is God's fault. All God does in this passage is finally say, if you want life without my influence, if you want life without my protection, if you want life without my guidance, I will let you have it. That's all he does. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And in, in reality, God's done everything possible to keep people from this moment. He's given them His Word. He's given them His Son. He's given them every possible opportunity to listen to Him that could be given and they still want none of it. Well, Josh what does this have to do with me? We're not living in that time period. No, neither was Pharaoh. Neither was Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't living in this time period either. But his heart got hardened, didn't it? Any of you who don't know Jesus can tell Jesus no so many times that your heart begins to harden. Can resist God for so long Did. It's probably a cheesy illustration. Y'all ever see that movie, read that book, or seen the movie with Tom Hanks, Polar Express? Y'all ever seen it? That The character in the the movie gets this little bell. He asks for a bell from, from Santa's sleigh. And he shakes it, and it sounds like the most beautiful thing he's ever heard. And he gets to take that bell home with him and the older he gets the more callous he gets the colder he gets he pulls out the bell one day and he shakes it and he can't hear it but his kids are like what's that I'm not equating this with a bell from Santa's sleigh but I am saying familiarity does breed contempt And the more you hear the word of God and refuse to listen to it, the more callous and cold and shut off to it you get. If you're hearing the gospel and you're hearing the Holy Spirit, prick your heart right now and say, Hey, you've never confessed your sin to me. You've never come to me to be adopted into the family of God. You know right now that if you died, you would bust hell wide open. If you're hearing that voice in your heart right now, you respond to it today because I can't promise you you'll hear that voice tomorrow. If you've got somebody who habitually, whenever you share the gospel with them, if you've got somebody who habitually shuts you down, shuts you out, you hit your knees and you pray for them every opportunity you get. Because every time they do that, Scripture says that it gets harder and harder and harder and harder for them to hear. You hit your knees and you pray for them like you never prayed for anybody before. That God doesn't tempt us to destroy ourselves, but he will let us if that's what we decide to do. And second, I want us to see that Jesus does warn us to avoid destruction, but he doesn't force us. You get this neat little parenthetical statement in the middle in verse 15 where Jesus says, Any of y'all got red letters in your Bible? It goes real pretty red right here, doesn't it? It says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This is a very effective illustration because Jesus is, this is actually kind of a, a military illustration here because the, the picture is of a soldier or someone in his house who is about to have to get ready for combat or defense, but he's laying in the bed without his clothes on. And he's got to get up and move quickly, and the fight goes outside. Well, you've got to fight. If you can't just lay there, you'll die. But you ain't got your clothes on, which means you've got to go outside. What? I don't think any of us are in a real big hurry to do that. It's shameful, it's not good. In the Old Testament, this was actually one of the ways that you could be shamed. I found out reading, studying for this sermon that if you were the temple police and you fell asleep at your post, your punishment was to be stripped naked and sent home. That is a powerful motivator not to fall asleep on the job, isn't it? What's the motivator? The shame. But more interesting than this is the tense of Jesus's Warning, when John talks about this angel pouring out his bowl in the Euphrates, he's speaking in the past tense. He's speaking of it like something that's already happened in his vision. But when Jesus starts speaking, he speaks in the future, doesn't he? I am coming. Or rather, that that sounds like the present, but the idea is of a future event. A day is that there will be a day when I come. And so you need to watch. And keep your garments so that you don't walk naked and no one's going to have to see your shame. So what's going on here? To hear what just happened, to hear that the entire population of the earth is going to be convinced by demons that it's a good idea to go to war against God and inevitably lose. You would hear this and think, my goodness, this is a scary prospect. I don't want to be fooled by demons into believing that I can actually defeat God with human military might? I don't want to find myself in rebellion against God at the most crucial moment in human history. How do I avoid that? And Jesus says, don't find yourself in that situation in the first place. Make your choice now. Watch, be alert, don't go to sleep. Don't just say, oh, I'll figure out this whole God stuff later. I got, I got, I've already told you this one time. Maybe some of y'all remember it, maybe not. I had a friend of mine when I was in high school who's named Barry. Big old dude, played football. Neat guy. Worked with me at the hardware store. And the hardware store, as much as I loved it, everybody else is using barcodes. We still got stickers. So the truck would come in on Tuesday and we'd have all these big totes in the back and we'd have to pull everything out of the boxes and put the stickers on every single item. It would take hours. So for hours of the day, I was one of the, me and Barry were some of the new guys, so we got put in the back room. And we had to put the stickers on all the stuff. Which means I had hours to talk to this guy. So I get talking to him about Jesus one day because that's just what we do, right? And I said, Barry, have you ever been... I, 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 I said, you know, you, talking to you for a while, have, are you saved? Like, have you ever given your life to Christ? Oh, no. That was bold. Okay. He's like, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I go to church. I believe the Bible's true and everything. I just haven't been saved yet. I need you to explain this to me. You believe you're a sinner. Oh, yeah. And you believe that Jesus is, is the Son of God, fully God, fully man, who died on a cross for the sins of the world and rose three days later? Absolutely. But you've never called on him to save you. Nope. Why? Well, I got stuff I want to do I want to do first. That was his answer. I want to be saved one day, but I got stuff I want to do first. I can feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up. You don't think God has an opinion on that? You think you got you pulled the wool over God's eyes that you found a way to game the system? That you're going to willingly indulge yourself in all of that sin that you think is fun. That you think is fine. And you're just going to wait and get all your, your funsies out of the way. And then go to Jesus and say, okay, now that I've had my fun, forgive me for all that stuff that I enjoyed doing. And honestly wish I could continue doing. But I would prefer not to go to hell. So I decided right here, kind of at the end of the game, that you don't have a guarantee you're going to get to the end of the game. You don't have a guarantee that you're going to get to make that choice later when you'd like to. Jesus tells you in this passage right here, I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming when you don't expect it. But y'all say, well, we don't know when Jesus is coming. No, that's part of the point of that passage. But you know what? There is a way in which Jesus could come for every single one of us prior to the moment that he comes for all of us. It's called death. You don't know when that's going to come, do you? You don't know when you're going to have to stand in front of him. I don't know when I'm going to have to stand in front of him. But I can know that the best thing to do is to keep my spiritual clothes on so that when I have to stand in front of him, not be embarrassed. I want to be ready to see Jesus whenever that might be. If it's at his return, I want to be prepared. If it's at my death, I want to be prepared. I don't want to wait for that moment and then try and figure it out right then. Jesus says, watch, keep your garments so that you don't find yourself embarrassed. The time for moving on the gospel is now. Don't always think that you can act and 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 then decide that all of these acts, you've gotten all your fun stuff out of the way. Now I'm going to go to Jesus and I'm going to be forgiven. But I'm going to push and 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 I'll always have the chance. On your handout I put Matthew chapter 13 verses 34 through 35. And you might say... Well, I don't see how this has anything to do with the sermon, but it does. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So what does that have to do with this passage? If you go back and you look at Matthew chapter 12, do you know what they did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus cast out a demon, and they said, well, of course Jesus cast out a demon. He cast out a demon by the, by the king of demons. This guy doesn't have the Holy Spirit. This guy's got a demonic spirit. This guy's not from God. This guy's actually the problem. And Jesus slowly turns around to them and says, you have committed the one sin that there's not any forgiveness for. You've called the Holy Spirit A demon. And what's scary from that point on is anytime Jesus speaks to them, he speaks to them in a parable that they don't understand. Go back and look. Starting in Matthew 13, which is literally the very next event after Jesus tells them that you will not be forgiven for that sin. He never speaks to that group of people without a parable again. And they never understand it. Jesus is talking for the rest of the gospel. That they hear his words, but they don't comprehend it. It makes no impact on their heart. They think he's crazy. They think he's off his rocker. They think he's lost his mind. He's not making any sense. Who can understand this guy? But meanwhile, it's the folks who follow him and go into the house with him and say, explain to me what you just said. And they end up knowing him. They end up understanding what he's saying but the Pharisees and the scribes and all the people who think he's the problem, who think he has a demon, they get nothing but parables. They hear all the same words and get none of the same understanding. Is that scary? The prospect that you can hear Jesus talk, but be, have the ability to understand it be gone? That terrifies me. But the good news is, if you're here right now, there's a chance... You're not there yet. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus is standing right there knocking. He's standing right there calling you. He's standing right there giving you the opportunity. Just stop being stubborn. In the Old Testament, one of the... Y'all, God's got some snark. Have you ever seen him telling the Israelites in the Old Testament what he thinks about the way they're acting sometimes? Man, God's got some snark. He called them stiff-necked. What does it, what does it mean to be stiff-necked? It means to get older. No. <laughs> Being stiff-necked means you can't, you can't turn. Well, that's really sad since repentance means turning. We were on a mission trip one time when I was in college. And uh, I'm not going to say the girl's name right now because we still have several mutual friends. In some way, somehow, this story may get back. She wouldn't care. But enough bad things happened to her when we went on trips that she got nicknamed Danger. Because if there was danger, she would find it. And we had to paint, or her team had to paint one day. And she found the one corner of the room that had the oddest angle that had to be painted. And she stayed there painting. It took her hours. And she was in a corner like this, painting and doing this all all over. And it got time for them to leave this day. And y'all, I'm going to channel Jerry Clower. If I'm lying, I'm dying. They pulled her out of that corner and she had to walk the rest of the day like this because her neck was so sore and stiff she couldn't turn it. She'd been there for that long. It couldn't move. You can be stubborn. You can be angry. You can be resentful toward God. But I promise you, if you keep your neck stuck there long enough, you'll find that it's so painful to move, you just flat won't want to. You'll be stiff-necked. You won't want to turn, and so you won't, even if your life depends on it, which it does. Jesus says he's standing at the door knocking right now. Why would you put it off another day? Why would you wait? Today's the opportunity. Today's the day to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he'll be glad to open the door and come in with you and begin this relationship with you. And and you don't have to fear a hardened heart and a stiffened neck. That all depends on how you act when you've got the opportunity. So Jesus does want us to avoid destruction, but he doesn't force us. He's not going to push the door open and make you listen to him. And finally, Satan can't single-handedly destroy us, but he can be very convincing. Verse 16, and they, Jesus has ceased talking. Now we go back to focusing on these demonic spirits that are convincing the world that it's a good idea to pull a gun on God. They gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, for some reason, John thinks it's important that we know this is a Hebrew word. But that complicates things, because if it's a Hebrew word, there's several different things it could be. It could be the combination of two words, Har Megiddo, Har meaning mountain, Megiddo meaning Megiddo. That's a place. Problem is, there is no such place as Mount Megiddo. It doesn't exist. It has never existed. So that leads me away from thinking... It probably doesn't mean Mount Megiddo, uh, but it could, in fact, mean the city of Magadon. It's an ancient city lying on the north side of the Carmel Ridge and commanding the strategic pass between the coastal plain and the valley of Estrelon. It's one of history's most famous battlefields, having witnessed major conflicts, all the one from One fought by Tutmos III in 1468 BC, all the way to Lord Allenby of Megiddo in 1917. If you go to scripture, you can find that Barak and Deborah defeated the chariots of Sisera by the waters of Megiddo. You can see that in Judges 4 and 5. And also Ahaziah, wounded by the arrows of King Jehu, fled to Megiddo and died there in 2 Kings chapter 9. Battles have been fought on this battlefield for as long as that field has been around. Whether or not it's there, whether or not it's somewhere we haven't identified, somewhere we failed to identify. The point is that the spirits who go out from the beast, false prophets, and dragon are convincing the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they all decide together here on this place John calls Armageddon. The armies of every single nation on earth are going to prepare for open war against God. And to us this sounds crazy, but to them it sounds reasonable. It sounds reasonable. That's what I want to focus on here. It sounds reasonable. Do not ever underestimate how convincing a demonic argument can sound. Did God really tell you you're not supposed to eat from any of the trees in the garden? No, it's just that one in the middle we can't eat of. He said we're going to die if we eat it or we touch it. No, you're not going to die. God's not going to kill you. He just told you not to eat from that tree because he knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be just like him. And he don't want that. Genesis 3, go check it out. It's how Satan killed the whole human race. One lie. And it was convincing. It's very convincing. I read an article this week. I'm not big on... Really, movies in general, it drives my wife nuts because I'm not a big fan of just watching movies. Uh, I, I would much rather watch TV shows because I feel like they go on for so much longer. There's so much more story. A movie, it's like two hours and then you're done. But I read an article this week on why Eastern horror movies tend to have an element of fear that Western horror movies don't have. And of all types of movies, I, I, I don't like horror. I just I, I don't watch it. I feel like it's, it, it, it's just not, it does nothing edifying for me. So I don't have any reason to watch it. But the reason that it argued that Eastern horror movies are scarier is because in a lot of Eastern religions, there is this idea that God is capricious. Or the gods are capricious. There's no order. There's this <clears throat> chaotic... Spiritual world that is actually not that far from our own. That the veil between the spiritual and the physical is much thinner in eastern religions and they view this interaction between the spiritual world and the physical world as being a lot more fluid and there's no guarantee that good's going to win in the end. So that when you watch an eastern horror movie if you're watching it from an eastern perspective uh, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, Shinto, um any of these eastern religions it's scary because if that's your religious belief it's like man what if that happened here there's not this hope that good's going to win in the end it's it's all fluid and, and and it could just go go south any minute whereas in western culture we don't really think that way because even if you're not a christian you've been so influenced by Judeo-Christian history that you have this idea of an objective good and an objective evil and the good guy always wins in the end even if it gets bad in the middle. Right? That's generally the movie structure is when a movie ends and the good guy doesn't win you feel like the movie was done wrong because the good guy's supposed to win in the end. Eastern movies good doesn't win in the end all the time because that's the way they view the world. By the time you get to Revelation chapter 16, the majority of humanity thinks that this veil between the spiritual and the physical has thinned out, which is true. It has by this point. That you're seeing actions of God every second. But because they have chosen not to see the goodness and grace and love and mercy of God, they buy into the lie of Satan that God is capricious and evil and wicked. And so they act out of fear. And they are convinced that The best thing they can do for themselves is not to repent, but to go to war. Jesus says in John 8, If God were your father, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come from myself, but he sent me. Why don't you understand my speech? You're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. That's why you don't hear. Because you're not of God. Be very careful. Satan lies. He's the father of it. He's the originator of it. He's the best at it. And he wants you dead and in hell. And he will do anything he can to convince you that that's the way it ought to be. But the good news is, God is not capricious. He's not wicked. The good God does win in the end. And there's a way that you can be on his side. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 22. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, this is Peter. He said, Satan's asked for you. That he may sift you as wheat. But I pray for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter got overconfident and he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster's not going to crow three day, throw this day three, before you will deny three times that you know me. Satan can be convincing. But Jesus is good. And he's powerful. And he's strong. And he is actually on your side. Satan will lie and tell you that he is. The world will lie and tell you that it is. But the only one who actually loves you enough to die for you is Jesus. Why won't you listen to him? Why would you not today? What reason do you have that is good enough to tell God no one more time? You don't have them. Nobody in here has. If Jesus is calling you, today the, the day I needs If you need to be saved, I would love to talk with you about that. I'd love to explain what that means to you. You got a few different options here. You can turn on the side and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you about being saved. I'll talk with you a little bit longer after service. I won't make you have that whole conversation up here with me. Uh, but we will have it. If that scares you or you're uncomfortable doing that, fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin. put it in the offering plate when you go fire. If you miss that, catch me at the back door. But don't leave here today until God know one more time. Because you don't know if you're gonna hear your call together. I'm gonna pray. If you need to come, you come. Uh Joyce is uh gonna lead us in some some invitation music. It's gonna be hymn number four forty five. Um We'll pray and then stand with you. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, I pray. <clears throat> if there's anybody in here today who's just said no over and, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Lord, I feel like I rambled at some point. a lot of points there my sermon today, but I don't think I ever left the main point. But we're not guaranteed another chance to tell you yes. So we need to quit telling you no. And Lord, if there's somebody in here today that has been telling you no over and over and over and over, Lord, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to break that hardened heart out of its shell and get them up and bring them to you and save them now while they can still hear you talk. I'm confident that you can and will do that. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stay with me together, let's sing hymn number 445.